Uh, we are doing a church history. Bob kicked us off on church history. Uh, Bob was slated to do this session and asked if he could uh, get a backup because he's out. So I'm going to tackle today's topic, which is um, Constantine and the influence of Constantine on the church. But it has some really, really big issues and discussion items uh, that mean that you have to interact. You have to speak. You have to ask questions. You have to be bold. You must be funny. Uh, you have to be like on. So be prepared. You can't drift on this one. You've got to be with me. All right. So uh, the story of the church through time, uh, the way I have taught church history years and years and years ago is um, if you can't trace yourself back theologically, uh, understanding the, uh, the, the gospel of Jesus through time back to the apostles, then you're not a church. You're probably a cult or maybe, maybe a, a parachurch gathering of some sort, uh, maybe a religious group, but you're not a church. If you can't trace yourself, you're not part of the church. If you can't trace your understanding of the gospel and your theology, your, your ecclesiology back to the apostles, which is why church history is pretty important. It's uh, pretty important to do that. Um, how can I say such a thing? What, what does Jesus say that gives me the confidence to declare that if you can't connect yourself historically back to the apostles, then you're not part of the church. What did he say about the church that guarantees there's no breaks? Because most of the cults that you know tell you that there was a break in time where there was no, was, there was no follower. And they were the revival of that. But Jesus says something that contradicts that. So we have the foundation of the church, the cornerstone, the apostles, and Jesus is the cornerstone himself. But he also says that the church cannot, cannot be defeated, destroyed, because the gates of hell cannot even prevail against the church, which means the church is invincible in many ways. Oh, she gets beat up. She gets uh, tossed around, right? There, there are times when it looks like it's on the brink, and there are like cinematic portrayals of that where you're like, oh, the church will never be again. Uh, if you've watched um, Andrew Garfield, um, Adam Driver in Silence with a, this Christian influence in Japan, and you feel like, oh my goodness, the church is going to extinguish and go out. But it cannot, because Jesus promises that it will always, always be present and thrive in many ways and flourish because Jesus protects her, because it is his bride. So we're, we're talking about Constantine, and boop. Oh, I'm sorry, go back, reboop, unboop. We're talking about Constantine and the, this, this monumental shift where the church, out of the age of the apostles, becomes in a different um, uh, status, has a different status legally that changes. And, and you would think, wow, that's a great thing, that's awesome. Uh, but it also has its problems. In addition, Constantine, many people think, he was never really Christian. Um, he was favorable to Christianity. He provided legal status to Christianity. Or actually, he did not. He, um, through the Edict of Milan, he says the church is a legal entity. But it doesn't become the state church until later. But was, was Constantine really a Christian? And what does that mean? Um, because he has these events where 
he declares his loyalty and fealty for Jesus, but his actions in life never seem to align with it. His baptism is even much, much later in life, almost before he dies. Almost before he dies, right? So that's our topic today is Christian or Christianized, and we'll use the, uh, the, the influence of Constantine on the church, or vice versa, the influence of the church on Constantine, as a discussion starter for, I wonder if we take other things that are not Christian and Christianize them and think we're doing a really good thing. And we find ourselves probably not doing a really good thing. It depends. Depends on what it is. I have a great example that you're going to love. You're going to love this one. Boop. All right. So we'll start out with the, um, the, the impact of Constantine on the church or the impact of the church on Constantine. Um, in the city of Philadelphia, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lover of Philadelphia, uh, the city of brotherly love. I love the city of brotherly love, uh, especially old Philadelphia. There's a museum that has 13 tapestries uh, called the Constantine Threads, as a cool name to call the exhibit. And these, uh, these tapestries were woven in the 1600s uh, by these Baroque artists who um, wanted to capture, or were actually commissioned to capture the influence of Constantine in 13 tapestries. These tapestries were 25 feet by 16 feet each, and each depict a different scene in Constantine's life. Uh, here are some of them. The triumphal entry into Rome as the conquering emperor, uh, his marriage to Fausta, uh, the triumph at the Milvian Bridge. We're going to come back to that one because that becomes the moment where Constantine says, Christianity and me, we're good. Right? That's the moment that it happens. Uh, the baptism of Constantine, much later in his life, uh, and that's interesting uh, for our Baptist friends. And so... Uh, I know that many of you have a Baptist background, as do I. Um, but one of the things I think is fascinating about baptism as a topic historically is that our Baptist friends, who would say the only version of baptism that's legit is this version, and I'll, I'll, I'll try not to... This version, right, is the only legit baptism. Well, it turns out, um, if you travel Europe and you go to these churches, some of which are over a thousand years old, uh, I have enjoyed making the, just Venice, if you go from church to church to church to church to church to church, and they're just right next to each other. These massive, massive cathedrals. And throughout France, uh, throughout the, you know, France and Germany and throughout Europe, we stopped in Frankfurt in multiple churches and in Venice, and we were there and looking at these depictions, and usually they have murals of the life of Jesus, right? Uh, the different a- episodes in Jesus' life. And one that's almost always there is the baptism of Jesus, And you would think if the right depiction of baptism, the only right understanding is this, then you would find that in some of these frescoes or or tapestries, or you would find it on a mural painting. You would find it somewhere, but it's not. Um, Most baptisms of Jesus are with him standing or um, the water coming down, not going into, but coming down. It's only in the Reformation where we start seeing this, uh, this debate on what's real baptism, what's not. And just so you know, the mode of baptism is not really the issue, not even for us. It's not the, that's not the issue. We have our own um, depiction, but it's not the issue. Um, the issue is the recipients and why those recipients, correct? So in the tapestry where Constantine is baptized, he's actually not in the water. He's kneeling and there's water being poured on his head. And that's the depiction of baptism even before 
For thousands of years, baptism was viewed typically this way. There is St. Helena or Helena uh, and the True Cross. So um, Helena or Helena is the mother of Constantine, and she is the great influence on Constantine's life. She's of Greek descent, and she is a uh, follower of Jesus, and she is the influence on Constantine's life that ultimately he, um, he does um, become a follower, at least outwardly, of Jesus. And there is a tapestry. One of these 13 tapestries is, is uh, St. Helena, Helena, um, standing next to her son Constantine and pointing him to the true cross and pointing him to the cross of Christianity. And this depiction is her influence in his life, which is certainly far before this uh, event at the Milvian Bridge. And then there's a, a, a tapestry of the building of Constantinople, uh, which, by the way, becomes the city of Istanbul. Istanbul is modern-day is modern Constantinople because Constantine decides to build uh, um, a mirrored governmental seat in the Byzantine Empire, and Constantinople becomes this flourishing place. And after the conquest of Islam, uh, it's changed to Istanbul. So all these scenes are on these tapestries in Philadelphia, and if you'd like to know um, which, which museum, if you'd like to go, I will be glad to share it with you. Um, I'm not going to boop anymore, but I am going to move on. Uh, the impact of Constantine on the church, uh, this is part two. Um, he becomes emperor in AD 306, and um, in one of those tapestries, it depicts this scene where he's the military leader of Rome, and he needs this victory. Got to have this victory at the Milvian Bridge to cut off uh, the, conquer- the invaders and to have this great victory. And during this uh, uh, run-up to the battle, he has this vision. Constantine has this vision, and this is what he sees. Uh, forget the circle around it, but he sees these two Greek letters, which are one's Rho and Chi. He sees Chi and Rho. And Chi and Rho, and, um, for those of you who know, what is Chi and Rho the representation of? The name of Jesus. It's the, it's the title of Jesus. Messiah is a title. Christ is our word for that. And he sees this vision of these two Letters, these two Greek letters that represent who Jesus is. By the way, our friends at Redeemer Prez and uh, Cooper Young, this is their logo. This is the logo in Cooper Young when you drive by. It's this Chi and Rho that Constantine sees, and the message that what he hears is, by this signal, by this sign, you'll win. Trust in this, and you will win. And sure enough, he has victory at the Milvian Bridge, <clears throat> the rest is sort of history. Um, he, his fealty and his loyalty to Christianity is exceedingly um, pronounced after this event. Going? One more? Um, more influence of Constantine on the church. So in AD 313, after this Milvian Bridge incident, he becomes this uh, advocate for Christianity. And I keep saying advocate because... Some would say, oh, he became Christian, and others would say, well, he didn't. Um, But he becomes a very um, prominent and powerful, the most powerful advocate for Christianity, perhaps on planet Earth, a human person. Because in AD 313, he gives this edict of Milan, where the church is no longer a subject of persecution and and hated by the Roman state. And why were they so hated? Why why, Why was the church so hated by the Roman state? 
Yeah. The emperor is a depiction or a representation of God himself, and you had to have emperor worship as part of your core, and no Christian can do that. No Christian can legitimately worship the emperor. And so, in many cases, Christians would do what? What would Christians do with the threat of, you need to worship me? Some would be executed or tortured. Up, leave. Others, lie. Or give in. Or just say it. Caesar's Lord. That's what they would say. This leads to a very, very deep discussion at the Council of Nicaea, who, by the way, Constantine calls. He's the one that calls that conference. Uh, The Edict of Thessalonica in 8380 is the actual making Christianity the state church. Um, this, This change in status is significant, and it's significant for us today, because the first person to ever give sort of tax free status to the church was Constantine, where he gives them favored status from a tax basis. We have that too. It's called the 501c3 status in the tax code, and it belongs to anybody who is set up as a charitable um, organization. And um, it's a benefit to us. You personally benefit, right, from giving to a five. Yes? I hope you, hope you know that you benefit personally from giving to a 501c3. Uh, and as many as you would like to give to. Our government incentivizes you to give generously. How do they do that? They, re- they reduce your tax burden by an amount based on how much you give, right? <clears throat> it's a great, it's a great um, status. They reduce your general tax burden because of the amount of money that you're willing to give to help not just churches, but any charitable organization. Why would our government be interested in helping that? It's self-serving. It's self-serving. They know that those things are, are things that should be done in a different way, and they're not good at it. The government's not good at charitable contribution and, and ministry in a local setting or with a particular bent. They're not good at it. They're good at a couple of things. They're, they're really good at building an army and a military and a navy, right? And an air force and coast guard and Space Force and all those things. They're good at those things. Um, they're really good at that. They're not so good at getting to the appropriate need in an inner city neighborhood with this woman who's got this issue. They've, they've only got one stroke, and this is one big, one big hammer that they can swing. And so they, they know that 501c3s are the best way to do this because they're local, they're committed, they're usually uh, quite good, not always. They're usually quite good at what they do because they're driven with a passion to do it. It doesn't always work out that way. So just a quick discussion question. I don't want to take a lot of time on it. What if we didn't have that? Still called to do what? And so if that tax break went away, what would be if the government said you no longer get the benefit of charitable contributions on your taxes? In what way? You have to itemize to actually take any real benefit from it. So Chaz is prognosticating what would actually happen. Um, John's point was, you're still required to give. 
That, that's the incentive to give is that your king says give. That is the motivation is that your Lord says you are to give. The government just recognizes we can benefit from that and up to this point has said, good, that helps. There was a recent administration who was toying with the idea of taking that incentive away uh, when President Obama was in office. He was toying with the idea. And I was at a, a Lenny's in Midtown and the local news uh, people were in there all the time. And so Ursula Andrews, Ursula Madden, thank you. Ursula Madden was in line, right, I was right behind her, and um, she's very outgoing. She turned and said, have you heard about this um, effort by President Obama to take away the tax incentive? And I was like, yeah, I have. And she said, well, what do you think would happen? I said, well, personally, I'm going to continue to give because I'm not doing it for him or for the government or for uh, the benefit of um, a U.S. governmental structure. I'm giving because the one who saved me the one who rescued me says, I own 100% of what you have. She's very distracted. I own 100% of what you have, and I call you to give and support the work of ministry locally um, and around the world. I mean, there, there are lots of things around the world that I think are worth your time and energy to give to. So, um, so he's the first to actually give legal, tax, uh, legal status and a, a break on taxation uh, for the church, which is significant. All right. Um, another significant impact of Constantine, then we're going to talk about our, our time and our place, uh, is the Council of Nicaea. He calls it, he invites about 1,800 bishops to gather and to have this discussion about Christianity because there are several things that need to be addressed. And Constantine is now taking the role of the convener. I would like to convene the leaders of Christianity and settle these issues. And that, that's a worthy goal. That's a great goal. Um, about 300 show up for any number of reasons. About 300 show up, which is a lot. It's still a, quite a few. Um, and here's their agenda. Settle the Arian question, which is a heresy that emerged, basically questioning the divinity of Jesus. And the Council of Nicaea, when you see the Nicene Creed, about 80% of it, word-wise, is about who Jesus is particularly his divinity. Because Arius was like, no, he can't be divine. He's really, he was, he's a created being. Uh, all heresy. <clears throat> Constantine wanted the church to speak to that and to create uh, a creed that would address it. And he does. He also wanted them to settle the date for Easter. Why? Yeah, you do have two, <clears throat> you have all this differentiation coming out of uh, the spread of Christianity, and he wants the date for Easter to be set. Uh, this is a significant Christian event. Uh, if you said Christmas, everybody liked December 25th. If you said uh, Halloween, not a necessarily a Christian thing, <coughs> you'd say October 31st. Um, even with Thanksgiving, you'd say last Thursday in November. Easter's different. Easter's set up differently. So at the Council of Nicaea, they came up with this pattern of when do we set the date for Easter. Uh, the third one was uh, this, this, uh, this schism that came up in the church, and here's why it came up. There were some who said, uh, you must say Caesar is Lord, and, and people did. To save their lives or the lives of their children before them, right? The threat from the state of, we're going we're to destroy your children in your sight. Uh, they said, I, 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 Caesar's Lord. I give. Caesar's Lord. 
the church dealt with those folks by removing them. You can't say Caesar is Lord and Jesus is Lord. You just can't. And as the ability for the church to have more legal status came up, those folks wanted to return. They wanted to be back and part of the fellowship. And some churches took them in and some churches kept them out. And Constantine wanted it to be addressed. Let's address what we're going to do with people who have um, bowed the knee out of threat of pain um, and want to come back in. Uh, we we kind of have this hypothetical thing where what if? What if something happened? and We were asked what you're going to do. And I know what we'd say today because we're sitting here and it's kind of comfortable. and um, Even with all the difficulties, still a pretty, pretty great place to live, right? <clears throat> but if something really happened, it would be an it would have the impact on the church. It just would. Um, it just would. And then there were some discipline issues that he, uh, he also wanted to address. So that was the agenda for the Council of Nicaea. And then this is what came out. Can't you read that from where you are? Most of the words are, uh, you've, and you read them on a regular basis here, so don't try to strain. But the 80% of those words are about who Jesus is. He's begotten, not made. Right? Begotten not made. Arius was, he's created. He was made. Begotten. Not made. Very God of very God. Light of light. Right? Um, strong pronunciation of Jesus has the dual nature of 100% deity and 100% humanity. And I know that is very difficult to understand, but if you try to separate that, diminish one or the other, you are a heretic. <laughs> you're, you're committing heresy. Because you only have one option. Jesus is 100% God, and he's 100% human. And if you try to diminish one or the other, you are in heretical territory. Council of Nicaea was addressing that. Okay, um, so let's talk about, just for a second, this, this topic of Christianity and Christianization. And we have good amount of time to do this. So, can you think of examples of the Christianization of items? In the case of Constantine... I'm really referring to the nation of Rome. The state ultimately becomes a Christian nation, a Christian uh, a government that says this is our religion. That's a Christianization of a government, which is not a person per se, and every single person in Rome is not a Christian. But there is such a spread of Christianity and such an influence of Christianity that it just made sense. Let's just make the state religion Christianity. By the way, there are many nations right now that still have as their state religion Christianity. We're not one. But there are many who... Can you think of an example? Yeah, there's... In fact, um, when we talk about Peru... Um, similar in some ways, Peru, the, the care of ministers, at least in the Catholic Church, comes through the state. doesn't come through, of course they're taking up collections, but their, their salary is provided by the state, by the Peruvian government. Norway has as its officially stated religion, Lutheranism, Christianity, a form of it, and Lutheranism, still today. At, and it's one, of the, it's, one, yeah, it's one of the craziest places on planet Earth. And yet... They're still saying, if you're born in Norway, you're Lutheran. You're a Lutheran, right? We, we, we do chuckle at it because it's, it's kind of odd. 
That's the kind of Christianization I'm talking about. And there are things that we do in that category that I just want to, I want to think about for a few minutes. What are the benefits of doing such things? And what are the downfalls? So let me give you the example first because I know your, your minds are spinning and wondering. What, let me give you an example. It's a fun example, but it's a good example. And I'm just trying to start conversation. That's all I'm trying to do. Heath? Ta-da! Coffee! Coffee is an example of something being Christianized. So here's the, the background on that. Um, coffee was moved through trade routes in Africa. Ethiopian beans are still the standard, right, Jim? All right, still the standard. And they ended up in all these Western locales through trade. And so coffee starts emerging out of particularly the Islamic world. Not that it was always. You, just, you have to keep reminding yourself, all of North Africa was not Islamic forever. It's only been recently done. I mean, relatively recently. Um, all of the Middle East. The wine of Islam is coffee. It, all of the Middle East was not Islamic at first. Uh, Christianity was born in that part of the world. Islam came later, and actually 600 years later, right? Um, so it was coming out of the Muslim world and being um, introduced into the Western world and the Christian world through these trade routes. Um, it was used in the Sufi uh, branch of Islam as their religious drink, as their, this is a, uh, this is a, this is a divine blessing, and everyone said it's a great blessing. Um, so it was different from beer. In the Christian world, where beer was the, the, the kind of the focus element, it kind of uh, drugged and, and took people out of real um, energetic participation. It kind of drugged you and took you out, right? It, it has a different effect on you than coffee does. Coffee made you almost superhuman, right? Because you could do stuff and keep doing stuff, and you could be wide awake while you're doing it, and fully alert and always engaged, because of the caffeine in the drink. So it, it was a scary thing for some people because if you wanted to control populations, what would you give them? Would you give them beer? Or would you give them coffee? And in the Western world, it was coffee is, that's the bad drink. We want beer. We want beer. Well, then in the 1500s, 16, uh, early 1600s, Pope Clement VIII decided he would taste coffee. And the rest? As we say, it's history. He said, this Satan's drink is so delicious that it would be a pity to let all these infidels have exclusive use of what is now our drink. (laughs) Of what is now the drink of the Christian people. Right? (laughs) Um, It's a silly but, but accurate example of something that was considered to be this over here And then for some reason, good reason, uh, we want this to now be the Christian drink. Thank you, Chris. Chris is tracking. There are other things not as um, delightful, not as humorous, uh, that happen as a result of Christianization. Now, uh, I'm going to go ahead and move the slide and, and make sure you hear me correctly. Were there examples of Christian conquest that included the words convert or die? Yes, there were. And you'll say, but the Muslims did it too. Yes, as the Muslims conquered, they also said convert or die. And so there are lots of places where people are 
I would say, sort of culturally Muslim, but not really. And sort of culturally Christian, but not really. This would be yes, this would be no. You would go, eh, I don't know if I get it. Um, but you're following with me. Anybody that says, okay, I'll convert rather than die, you have some discussion of, is that real? Is that a real thing? Are you actually heartfelt converting your life and practices, raising of your children from Christianity to Islam or vice versa, from Islam to Christianity under the threat of convert or die? Uh, nations, the history of Christian missions, the good, the bad, and the ugly is, and there have been great blessings, phenomenal blessings, amazing blessings of Christianity flowing into the world that did not have a witness in those places. So on a trip in early 2000s, I'm in Uganda. I'm at a, uh, a Ugandan church just outside of Kampala. And in that church, they're having a commissioning ceremony for missionaries to go out from that church. And it's a church full of Ugandans. They're Africans. I almost said African-American, but they're not. They're Africans. They're just African. These Africans in Uganda that are commissioning missionaries to take the gospel and they're celebrating. I mean, there is celebration in this church. Their form of worship a little different from ours as far as demonstrative. Little dance involved. A whole lot more loud singing. Loud singing. We can, we can sing loud. You're allowed to sing loud. Loud as you want. Lots of loud singing. Lots of demonstrative worship. So thankful that God... The missionaries get up and they get a chance to speak about their upcoming trip. And their destination to go and be missionaries is where? What do you think? Just guess. Some have. and In fact, Rwanda in particular has been a place where they've, they've commissioned missionaries to come back to the U.S. And one state in which they have found a, a, a home and flourished is where? From Rwanda. Arkansas. Missionaries from Rwanda coming into Little Rock and flourishing. There are churches that are planted in Memphis that are great churches today that were a result of that. Missionaries from Rwanda planting in, in Arkansas because that morning, here they are, again commissioned to go out. They're going to London. And here were their words. God used the English to come and bring the gospel to us. The gospel is fading there. It is our turn to go back and bring the gospel to them. Stunning. I was, I was on the floor. It was amazing. Amazing way of thinking about it. Um, in spite of the, uh, the slams against kind of uh, influencing culture or destroying culture or whatever it is, Christianity came and it's such a blessing to these folks. They're like, we want to go back to the people who brought it to us and bless them because it's leaving them. Because the church is dying in many western parts of the world. Right? By the way, the great growth in Christianity is the global south. It is Africa. It is uh, South Asia. It is Latin America. It's not in the West. It's not in what you consider to be the West. The explosive growth are all those places and China. And China. If you took a cross-section of an average believer today, that, that, and this is statistically still the case, a cross-section of the average believer today, she would be poor, because most of them are female. Poor and a, a brown skin and living somewhere in the 1040 window. That's, that is the average Christian today. But back, there was a time where you, you could tell what the average Christian is going to be. Today, it's global, south-centered, primarily female, primarily poor. So this also leads to a, a process of Christianization that blends other things into Christianity. That's okay with other... If you're doing those things, that's fine. We just be part of Christianity, be part of your worship, 
and that syncretism uh, happens a lot. The Catholic Church is famous for this as they go and um, um, take missions into other parts of the world. They'll, they'll adopt a lot of stuff in, historically, that is kind of merged in to the local, brand, or the local uh, feel of what Christianity is, right? And you know some of these. Some of these are pretty simple. Um, a former Baptist. So as the Baptists went and did missions in East Africa, um, the people that would convert would now start dressing like you and me. That was a conversion. Not, not just the dress, but you, you had a visible influence, um, which really didn't matter, right? To wear a suit and tie and, you know, on the equator every day. Doesn't seem real practical. So those kinds of things that are Christianized or, or uh, influence on culture, you, you have question marks next to those. But I know you can think of some examples of Christianity, which is for individuals and the conversion of their souls, it, it is the most important thing you ever, you ever experience. You're celebrating that every way you can. I, wanna, I want my music to be that way. I want my, I want my depictions to be that way. I want, I want everything I experience to be centered around what I've, what I've seen in Christ. Um, but there's also some, some dark sides of that, historically. And now I'm going to pause and see if you have thoughts or examples that you can think of as I back away. What would be an example of Christianization, not necessarily just Christianity? Scott, who's awake this week. Thank you, Scott. what has historically been going on there and what is what what, that continues for a reason right yeah and my professional history has a um, an organization that many would say that's a Christian company, and the owner would quickly correct you. No, no, no. Companies are companies. The people might be Christian, but not everybody at this company is. But we want to be a company that has, as the leadership has established, a goal of glorifying God. They didn't make, they didn't create Bibles. They didn't print Bibles. They were a construction company, you know, general category, construction company. But the owners wanted to make sure that um, whatever came of the the produce of that benefited ministry. But people would often say, I want to work for a Christian company. I want to come work for y'all. And we would say, that's not who we are. We're we're a construction company. Are you good at construction? Are you good at building stuff? Are you good at thinking about building stuff? And if you're a Christian who who can do that, so much the better. And if you really want to see the produce of the company being used in all these good ways, man, this is a a good spot. But that was said... I mean, I was one that said it a lot. It's, this is not that. But Chaz's point is the influence of Christianity for many years was we had blue laws, and still do in many, many places, blue laws that you couldn't sell alcohol. And the other one was South Carolina has some of that. But the one that's come up over and over again that surprised me is you, no alcohol or sold. No car sold. No car sold. And if you try to buy a new car today, you're going to have a little problem. Because they're not open today. And that's, that's a carryover. 
of an influence of Christianity. And you, and you would say, that's really good. And I would say, anything that, that honors the Sabbath, I'm for. That honors it. That puts the name, Jim, that puts the name on it as an honoring um, uh, example. Um, not, all the, not, not all those things do that, right? The question is, is there an example you can think of of something that's... Because Christianity, when we talk about uh, conversion, we're really talking about individuals and then groups of people. But people think about Christianity or Christianization in terms of other things, like nations. Which is massive influence for the good of society coming as a result of Christianization, right? Of Christian influence. Um, the legal system, if you, I, I, there are many, many complaints about the legal system. Many, many. The ones who are out there actually enforcing the law and the ones who are actually um, prosecuting the law. And in many cases, it's like, it's, if that's unfair, that's unfair, that's unfair. And I would say, um, pick a better system that's going to be set up with the protection of the innocent. And all, just think about, I wish, Nick, Nick where are you? Um, or, where's Andrew? Andrew's in the back. Um, the legal system and all the, the safeguards that are in place so that you hope nobody who's ever innocent gets condemned. It happens, right? Tragically happens. But it's all set up to, even if a guilty guy goes free, and I'm going to use a guy because that's okay. Um, most of the guys anyway. If a guilty guy goes free, that's better than an innocent guy getting condemned. That's what our, our entire legal system is based on that. And where did that come from? The influence of Judeo-Christian thinking, right? It is fascinating. And probably because most of us are like, no Chick-fil-A on Sunday, I'm going to get mine in during the week. I'm going to get a little extra helping of that in the week. But it's a, it's a benefit to them that they recognize, and I don't think it's going to change. Um, by the way, that's an, owner's, that's an owner's value. If the ownership should change, do not be surprised if that goes away. Their pay has always been higher. Their benefits have always been relatively higher than anybody else with that kind of industry. Right? So the influence of Christianity, even on the monetary system... Uh, and our logos. Can you think of an example? Those are all good. Can you think of an example of that's not so good? Can you think of an, all these examples we're using are the benefits of Christianity flourishing through people who are um, influencing all those? Founding fathers, the majority of those were Christian. And you think, and Chaz is saying, that's a bad law. That's bad law. We got we to gotta do some, rise up. We'll be co-branding now. So funny. And, and historically as well. Um, and you can think of examples recently. I'm not going to try to stir you up. I'm not going to try to get you mad. I'm just going to say the minute that we take the name of God and attach it to something that would say that violence was justified. That violence was justified. That's going to be a really 
tricky place to be. That God said, go do that. And it caused harm to an image bearer. You're going to have to show, I need that to be in writing somewhere. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great example of um, Christianization, which is not Christianity, right? That's a, um, even, even our, our Mormon neighbors would say, well, we're part of Christianity. And I would say, you are not. My Jehovah's Witness neighbors would say, we're part of, and I would say, you are not part of Christianity. You do not know who Jesus is. By denying Jesus' divinity and humanity, you do not know who he is. Oh, oh, oh Will, thankfully I only have three minutes. Oh, Will. Oh, yeah, I've got an example. Okay. So, so David Platt, uh, who's a phenomenal uh, Christian voice, um, wrote a book called Radical. And the subtitle of this book was about this very topic of what if Christianity does not get you the American dream? What if Christianity doesn't have as its goal the American dream? And then you have to say, well, what's the American dream? And you know, what, you know generally what people would say. Um, you know, uh, this is my castle. It's about me, uh, individuals over, the so, over social. What, what I want is more important than what you want, even collectively. Um, and I, he's, here's how I measure that financially with certain assets. And this, what if Christianity does not have that as a goal? Oh, those are benefits. Those are, I mean, those, those are beneficial things to say, I have a home. I have, I have a piece of property that, that I'm responsible for. Um, my kids have you know, an inheritance, uh, some of those things. Those are, those are nothing wrong with those at all. But to say the goal of Christianity are those things, that would be a problem. Because I can introduce you to millions of our brothers and sisters for which that's never going to be a reality. That's not the Christian goal. It might be an American uh, desire and vision, but those two things aren't always the same. And that's what, so Will mentions this um, manipulation. So Jim and Bob and I just spent a um, little time together on a retreat. Uh, Miss Chaz terribly, but he'll be back in, and oh, will he be back in. Oh, we have a wonderful plan for your life. Um, but it was, a great, it was a great weekend, and we're talking, as you know, we're talking about, wow, what, what do we think the Lord Jesus wants to do over off of Mount Pleasant? What do we think are the ministries that are needed to connect with people in our community that we don't have right now, right? We're having those kind of conversations for an extended amount of time, not really session agenda stuff, just kind of, let's, let's just talk, just dream big. And one of our discussions was about when we go into this building program, can we in any way, shape, or form so shape the direction of it that we don't end up with the reputation of so many churches that just plow over the community? Literally. Just plow things into the ground and try to push their way through the process as if that process doesn't apply to them because they're the church. So on your behalf as an elected representative of Christ Covenant Church. I sat in the planning commission meeting as we were talking about carving out four acres out of 24 over off of Mount Pleasant, and the planning commission has to approve that. And so as we're waiting our turn to do that, there's a church just down the street. I'm compelled not to use their name. 
Thank you. I do two shows a night. Um, that's right. So they were first. They were on the docket before us. And so they're having their discussion. And their discussion is really about realities of the last few years. They had a planned budget for X. It doubled. There's no way they can build what they had planned. And so they need a, 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 a variance to say, let us build this and then not build that. And we'll come back and build that. And legally, there's no way to do it. There's no way to get that variance legally. But if you have a pastor slash CEO, not my words, not my words, let me just say that again, not my words, pastor slash CEO getting up and saying, this is Jesus' work. Jesus wants that building right there. Ooh, did I point there? Jesus wants that building somewhere, somewhere. And, and that's, not, that's not one example. Bob has this many examples of the church in this city, in this community, of varying denominations and interests, plowing through the community saying, if Jesus wants it, get out of the way. I wonder, can you, can you be so definitive, dogmatic to say that's what... Now, you could say what's going to happen is X, and if it happens, it's got to be God's will. That's true. But if that's your argument for how God's will gets determined and that's why God wants all those things, you got some problems. you got some problems with other topics that I can bring and just put on your desk and say, what do you want to do with that? Because if it happens, does that mean that is God's desire? Oh, it's, it's ordained by Him. This is the best promise you have, brothers and sisters, and here's where I wrap up. The best promise you have, whether Constantine changes the legal status of the church or not, the best promise you have, all things work together for good those who are called according to his purpose. Those who are loved by God. Those who are called according to his purpose. Everything, all this, even the negative stuff that's happening to you right now. If you think of anything else on the way out the door, even the negative stuff that's happening. The good, the good news is God is somehow working that together for your ultimate good and his ultimate glory. Right? Does that mean that when tragic things happen and injustice happens and... Um, Wars break out, God is like, yeah. Or is that going to be another ordained event that he uses ultimately for the good of his people? The answer is yes. I don't understand all that, neither do you, or else I'd make you teach Sunday school. Um, but thank you for thinking through it with me. This is just an offshoot of what happens when all of a sudden Christianity is favored. Because you and I are moving into a season where not so much. And what are we going to do? How are we going to react? How are we going to interact? And one of the things we talked about was with, with this building program, let's make the, the community's um, taste of that very good. When, when, when the community thinks about, there's another church going in on Mount Pleasant. There was a friend of mine sitting here several weeks ago. It was like, another church going in on Mount I wonder if there's a way for us to move into that season and leave the community going, that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. It's nigh impossible, but let's try.